This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Things can get ugly really, really fast. These students are at increased risk during the first few months of their first and second semesters at college. This tends to happen in August, September, October, or November. What difference would it made in their life if they had had this conversation you and I are having right now? Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. It's Dr. Phil. That means you're listening to fill in the blanks. Now, parents, I want you to picture something for me, and you've probably been through this just very recently, or maybe you're getting ready to do it or doing it right now. But you're in your daughter's bedroom, and you're packing. I don't want to get you upset about being empty nest now, but this is a transition time, isn't it? Here you are moving stuffed animals and things that she has always kept on her bed all these years, to make room for suitcases for her to leave your house, your protection. She's going to go off to college where she is looking after herself. That's exactly what happened with 19-year-old Abby. She went to the University of Minnesota, and the University of Minnesota has a football program that is really exciting. There is team spirit there among the students that is very inspiring. And when it comes game day, everybody puts on all of their jerseys, all of their hats, all of their logos, and they have tailgate parties. And when I say tailgate parties, I mean sometimes these seem as big as the games themselves. And Abby, just 19 years old, went to one of these tailgate parties. This one actually took place in a big field where everybody knew to congregate. And she was there with lots of friends, people she knew. There was a gentleman there by the name of Daniel Drill Mellum, a fraternity member that Abby met through mutual friends at this tailgate party. There was a tailgate happening in the courtyard of the Floco Apartments. Okay. And did you go with friends? Yes. Right. It was always a really fun place to go. How much had you had to drink? before you got there, just guessing. 
Well, I'd filled up a water bottle about halfway with vodka and the other half with juice. Okay. Um, and by the time I'd gotten there, I'd finished most of the bottle. And were you tipsy? I was definitely drunk. I had friends later who told me I'd been kind of slurring and my eyes weren't fully open and things like that. How about the other girls? They were definitely drinking as well. One of them was actually a male friend, and that's who introduced me to Daniel Drill Mellum. Now, these tailgate parties start in the morning of the games, mid-afternoon or early afternoon. This Daniel Drell Mellum, a 21-year-old student that Abby has just met, convinces Abby to go to his apartment across the street with him to get more alcohol for the party. We were only probably in the courtyard for about 30 minutes around Daniel before he had noticed that my water bottle was empty. He took it from me and threw it to the ground and said, we better go get more. Okay. I told him, I think I've drank enough. I was starting to feel kind of lightheaded and a little too drunk and he said well I need some will you come help me get some okay. and at first I said no but he pointed across the street he said that's my apartment building we'll be right back in like two minutes I thought okay that doesn't seem too dangerous I can go do that Abby felt safe because her friend had told her that Daniel was gay so she thought I wouldn't necessarily go to an apartment with some guy that I had just met, but since they've told me that he's gay, it's not going to be any kind of a sexual situation, so I feel okay about it. They get to his apartment across the street and up the stairs at 11.35 a.m. I do remember him opening the door to his apartment. I got kind of a weird feeling as I started walking in towards the kitchen because I saw that he had these two shot glasses that were filled up on the counter. And I remembered then telling him that I didn't think I should drink anymore. And I thought it was weird that he had alcohol out for me. And then he started going into the bedrooms and calling out. And he told me he was making sure nobody was there. And I got really afraid. He came back towards the kitchen and he grabbed a shot glass and held it out towards me. And I remember sort of backing up towards the wall saying, I don't want it, I don't want to drink anymore, I'm way too drunk. And then I don't remember if I drank it or not. And she blacks out. Now, according to the statement Abby gave police, when she wakes up, he is tearing off her clothes. He rapes her twice, causing significant injuries. And he holds her in his apartment. He will not allow her to leave gagged me with his fingers and then simultaneously um, held his, his elbow down on my back and I felt like I couldn't breathe. And I just remember thinking, I either want it to end or I want him to kill me. And I didn't really care how it ended, I just wanted it to end. At 12.15, she is able to get loose and runs from Daniel's apartment back to the party across the street, very upset, tells her friend what happened. I called the male friend of mine who was friends with Daniel and I was so hysterical I couldn't get a single word out that he could understand and what he said back to me on the phone is he said, don't even worry, we're coming, we already know what happened, he did this to another girl too. He knew that? He knew that. Did you wonder what he meant when he said we know what happened? My mind was a little bit blown by that but when he came across the street he said he had received a Snapchat from a girl who had seen that Daniel was with me and said, don't let her go anywhere alone with him. He raped me. So he gets a Snapchat from someone that says, don't let her go anywhere with him and knows you're leaving with him. Yes. Her friend shockingly says she's heard that Daniel has done this before. 
Now think about this because I'm going to talk about this later in our conversation here. This is a friend, a friend, I'm putting that in quotes, that knew of Daniel's proclivity and failed to warn Abby what might happen. Okay, so they come to you. You're crying hysterically. Mm -hmm. They helped me then back across the street, and I sort of hid myself behind the building because I was afraid Daniel would be looking out the windows at me. I kept saying, I want to go home, I want to go home. There was a crowd, though, that gathered, and this girl came up to me, and she grabbed me by the shoulders, and she said, you have to go to the hospital. And I said, I don't want to, and she said, you have to go to the hospital. And I said, okay. And at that point, I opened up my phone and I called 911. At 12.45, Abby calls the police. The police say, look, we've questioned him. This isn't going anywhere. He says it was consensual. But reluctantly, Daniel is arrested about 1 o'clock for sexual assault. On November 9th, Abby wakes up to a Facebook message from one of Daniel's roommates. And the message says, and I quote, Hi, Abby, I'm a friend of Daniel Drellmellum, and apparently an incident occurred yesterday that was out of your control. I'm left with no information about what happened. Having said that, if you could potentially give me a call so I can get a better grasp on this whole situation, I would really appreciate it. I realize you're going to be hesitant about calling and giving me information. I am not mad. I am simply just dumbfounded about this incident. I fully respect you and your decisions. It would just mean a lot to hear your side of the story before you follow through with anything. Thank you. Now, surprisingly, Abby does call this individual, and he records the phone call. In that phone call, he asked Abby if she and Daniel had consensual sex. Abby says yes, but according to her, she misheard the word consensual thinking he had said actual, consensual actual, consensual actual. I've listened to that recording, and that word was definitely stumbled on. Maybe by intent, maybe not, but you think you would have a hard time confusing those two words until you hear this recording, and then you would go, oh, I get it. It was kind of like when that word is said, they go off mic, and it's a little hard to hear. And what do you think was the purpose of the call now, looking back? I think that the number one purpose was to convince me to not press charges. Okay. On that tape, this is just me, I heard him say, consexual. Yeah. You heard what? I heard either like sexual or like actual. I remember thinking that the question was about, did he rape me in the you know classic term? I thought that that's what they were trying to ask. To the question, did you have consensual sex, what is the answer? I would have never said yes to that. I would have said no. I would have been upset if he had even asked me that. Alarm bells started going off in my head during that phone call yeah. when they started talking about what a great guy he was. Yeah. But alarm bells would have gone off earlier if yeah. I'd heard, did you have consensual sex, given what I'd already told them. Well, they weren't very good at manipulating, because in the beginning of the call, you said, he raped me twice, mm -hmm. and he tried to set you up by saying, did he force you to go? And you said, no, I just went, 
and but then he wouldn't let me go. He said, so you were just kind of trapped. And I was So he shot himself in the foot with his attempted manipulation. And it's interesting to me, why would he bring up drugs and blackout? Yeah, I hadn't taken any drugs. You didn't say, I drank a shot that I think had a date rape drug in it, and I blacked out and woke up with him tearing my clothes off. He brought that up on the tape, not you. Yeah. Was this person charged with obstruction of justice? No. Was he charged with witness tampering? No. Were there any consequences? Abby realizes the purpose of the call was to intimidate her to drop the charges once he told her that Daniel was a great kid and she should consider dropping the charges. When this roommate takes the phone call to the police where she seemingly is saying it was consensual, he is released, not charged with anything because the recording seemed to say that she said this was consensual which seems significant, but was really frustrating to Abby because he was not paying a criminal price. But then people started coming forward. First one, then another, then another. Detective Kevin Randolph, sex crime investigator at the University of Minnesota Police Department, said we have enough now to go after him, to prosecute him criminally. Daniel is expelled from the University of Minnesota. He appeals and settles with them for a 10-year suspension. Now, to make a long story longer, after these other young women have come forward, Daniel is ultimately sentenced to six years in prison with the possibility of release for good behavior after two-thirds of his sentence is served. But the perpetrator fled the jurisdiction. In fact, he fled the country. So now she was left with this opened wound. But Kevin Randolph was really smart. He said he's out of the country, but he has family here. And I'm going to watch. I'm going to look at flight manifest into Minnesota. Because he said, in my experience, as time goes by, they think these get cold and he will come home. He'll come home at a holiday or a birthday or an anniversary. He will want to be with his family. And sure enough, two years later, on Christmas Eve, he popped up on a flight manifest coming in from outside the country, and Kevin Randolph walked onto that airplane and handcuffed Drill Mellum at Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport, and he ultimately was sentenced to six years in prison for sexual assault and rape. How did you know he would be back that night on that flight? I get a call from my contact at airport police who says he just booked tickets for Christmas Eve once he was airborne. Went down, met with airport police, and we were standing on the jetway and as soon as they opened the door we walked onto the airplane walked right up to him and said daniel dromelham you're under arrest for sexual assault abby finally got justice i want to tell you another story this story happens on june 23rd 2013 at vanderbilt university and you may know this story It involved multiple players on the Vanderbilt football team. Brandon Vandenberg was one of those players, and Corey Beatty was one of those players. And according to police, video at the Gillette dorm 
shows these two and two other former players, Brandon Banks and Jaborian McKenzie, carrying a young woman into Vandenberg's room, number 213. They're seen stopping at one point to photograph her exposed body. Police say just after 2.30. She's obviously incapacitated. At 2.32 a.m., according to police, Beatty began taking off the victim's clothes and sexually assaulting her with his fingers. Again, she is unconscious, incapacitated. Banks began touching her as well and taking close-up pictures with his cell phone. When I say close-up pictures, I'm talking about pictures of her very private areas. One of the men stuck a water bottle in the woman's anus, and Vandenberg is heard to giggle and cheer his teammates on, saying, squeeze that blank, squeeze that blank. Now, according to court testimony later, at some point, Vandenberg and Beatty each slapped the woman after commenting that she might wake up. Then Vandenberg began touching himself and got his laptop to watch pornography, apparently trying to get an erection so he could do more than what he was doing. Beatty put his hand on the woman's face and stuck his penis in her mouth. He then urinated on this incapacitated woman, all while taking pictures. Around 3 a.m., police say multiple sexual assaults occur over the course of 30 minutes. And during that time, Vandenberg sent text messages and at least one photo to another ex-player, Chris Boyd. There are later texts that go between these players indicating they are beginning to plan a cover-up. While investigating a damaged dorm door several days later, June 25, 2013, University officials became concerned upon seeing footage of an unconscious girl being photographed and dragged into a dorm room. Again, understand, this is a few days later. An associate dean starts to interview nine student-athletes, and officials alert campus police and schedule interviews. This does not go over well. The victim speaks with the detectives, And according to police reports, she is described as an initially confused or reluctant victim. The report says that she continued to date Vandenberg, although it's not clear she knew then what the four men would be accused of doing to her. Vanderbilt announces the players have been dismissed from the team for violation of team rules. Ultimately, they would be taken into custody. They would be taken to trial. This victim would testify. Now, get what I just said. After all of the horrific things you just heard me describe, this young woman continued to date the prime mover in this whole thing. She continued to date the instigator of this entire process. Why? because she was so incapacitated, she had no idea what had happened to her. She had no idea what had been done to her. 
When she ultimately testified at trial, she said that she and some friends were drinking at her apartment the night of June 22nd prior to taking a cab to Tin Roof, which is a local bar. The victim had a gin and tonic and a fireball shot, she says. She meets Vandenberg at the bar. I don't mean meet him for the first time. She met him there. She had already been dating him. So Vandenberg and the victim had begun dating a few weeks prior to the night of the incident. She says he gave her a blue drink. She didn't know what it was, which she gave away when she started feeling too drunk. She says the next thing she remembers is waking up around 8 a.m. in an unfamiliar room. Now, video evidence in court shows the victim and Vandenberg briefly went back to her apartment complex prior to returning to campus in the victim's car. And surveillance outside the Gillette dorm shows Vandenberg pulling up in the victim's car, running in to Banks, Beatty, and McKenzie, who accompanied Vandenberg as he carried the victim into the dorm. The victim told jurors she had sex with Vandenberg the next day. The next day after everything I just told you happened, happened. She said, quote, he told me that I had gotten sick in his room and he had to clean it up and that it was horrible and that he had to spend the whole night taking care of me and it was horrible. I apologized. I was embarrassed. The same day she met with police for the first time, she sent Vandenberg a message asking if he was all right. She's asking him if he's all right. His reply was, no, I'm not. This is all so messed up, like I didn't do anything, and I feel like I'm getting blamed for stuff that didn't happen. I just want to cry. Her reply was, I don't want anyone to get in trouble because of me. She was trying to protect her rapist, her violator. She says, and I quote, I'll do everything I can to clear your name. The victim says she was shown the surveillance footage and video from the Gillette House dorm room only after four former football players were indicted. That's me, she told the jury when the footage was put on the courtroom screen. When asked by prosecutors whether she consented to the acts, her response was simple and straightforward. Absolutely not. What inside you would make you do that? I, I don't know. To this day, I, I, you know, I... Alcohol washes away inhibitions. Why did those behaviors come bubbling out? I have no idea. Did you know Vandenberg? No, sir. You didn't know him before this night? I knew of him, but I, I didn't know what his character was like. How did he know that I can go find some defenseless young woman that's completely unconscious, bring her back to the dorm, and expect to get with some guys, strip her down, and violate her? How did he know that was going to be acceptable and OK? I don't know where he learned that from. I, uh, he was right. How did he know that? I, I don't know. Like he he ran with a different group of people than I ran with. I don't I don't know what they do. But uh, man, my group of friends that was that was not what we did. Well, apparently it is what you did. That's what you did that night. We know based on video evidence. Within two minutes, you're taking her clothes off and violating her. How did you you didn't even know him? I didn't know him. 
But as far as the character, I had no idea. What, what do you think of his character now? I think he's a good kid, honestly. I think he just got caught up in some unfortunate circumstances. So you'd hang with him if this all went away? I wouldn't kick him to the curb. No, I would still call him, hey, how you doing? Stuff like that. Why do you suppose he went out and got this girl and brought her back to this dorm full of boys? I don't, I don't know what he was thinking. I had no this idea. This good kid, why do you think he brought her back there? You, you think that shows good character? If he hadn't brought her back there, would you be here? <sighs> now, why am I telling you these two stories? It's interesting, we have words that we use to talk about things that get so overused in normal conversations sometimes that they kind of lose their meaning. They kind of lose their sting. Rape is one of those words. You hear rape and you think, okay, someone has been violated. But until you hear the details, like I just described, it's easy to forget what it really means for a person to be sexually assaulted. You see, rape is not about sex. There's nothing sexual about rape. Rape is about asserting power over another person. Now, I've been doing this podcast for a number of weeks, and I've been doing Dr. Phil for 18 years. Why am I choosing now, this week, this Tuesday, to talk to you about this? Well, let me tell you, every 92 seconds, another person experiences sexual assault. And women ages 18 to 24 are at an increased risk compared to the rest of society. And if you break out a group from that overall number, undergraduate students are at an extremely high risk. Almost one in four females that are undergraduates experience rape or sexual assault through physical force, violence, or incapacitation. Now, hear what I just said. Almost one out of four female undergraduate students experience rape or sexual assault through physical force, violence, or incapacitation. Why do you suppose that's so high? And let me tell you when this tends to happen. This tends to happen in August, September, October, or November. More than 50% of those sexual assaults occur in those four months. They're at increased risk for those few months of their first and second semesters of college. Why? Think about it. These young women have been living with their parents all of this time, right? They've had you there to see around corners. They've had you there to monitor where they go, who they're with, what kind of interface they may have with alcohol or drugs. But now, for the first time, they're on their own. They don't have you to pump the brake. They don't have you to check on them every four or five hours. They go on a date in four or five hours. They know you're going to be there. But now they're on their own. You may be a thousand miles away or a hundred miles away, which might as well be a thousand. They're on their own. So they feel footloose and fancy free. So a bunch of them get together and there are big parties on campus. People are starting to celebrate. Maybe they're fraternity parties, maybe they're university parties, maybe they're just dormitories getting together on or off campus. 
and they don't have you there. And if you have been particularly vigilant with your daughter before she goes to college, then there's going to be an even bigger contrast. So maybe her first foray into any kind of party with alcohol or drinking is going to be now when she doesn't understand the curve of alcohol. She doesn't understand what incapacitation feels like. So here she is with a peer group, goes to a party, and somebody goes, oh, well, hey, come over here. Let me fix you a drink. She has no idea what she's drinking. She has no idea where this might be 190 proof wood grain alcohol. So within a matter of hours, she can be completely incapacitated. At 0.08, it's illegal to drive. At two times that, where you're now at 0.16, you clearly have impaired judgment. You clearly have impaired motor skills. At 0.24, which is three times the normal limit, your ability to reason, your cognitive impairment is dramatic. So problem-solving skills, problem recognition skills, the ability to assert your will has been, excuse the pun, completely washed away. So my point to you, just as in the situation with Abby, just as in the situation with the young woman at Vanderbilt, is things can get ugly really, really fast. And these students are at increased risk during the first few months of their first and second semesters at college. It's also a high-risk area for males. It's 5% for them. It's almost 25% for women. And it's 21% for transgender, genderqueer, non-conforming college students They've been sexually assaulted during this same time as well. This is just a time that is highly dangerous. And unless you sit down with your child, and it shouldn't just be you sitting down with your daughters, because let's talk about who's raping these girls. You need to be concerned that your daughter might get raped, but you also need to be concerned that your son might be doing the raping. Because they get off and get partying as well, and their inhibitions are washed away. You know, we always say alcohol is a depressant. You say, well, if it's a depressant, then why, when people get drunk, do they start acting wild? Because it's a cortical depressant. And in the cortex of the brain are the inhibition systems. And it washes away inhibition. And so people do become more animated. So we have to think about the fact that if you're sending a child off to school, whether it be a young man or a young woman, how many of these young women, for example, do you think would love to have had this conversation that we're having right now before they went to school and got in a situation like Abby got into or got in a situation like this young woman at Vanderbilt got into? What difference would it made in their life if they had had this conversation you and I are having right now? And let's think about the young men at Vanderbilt, these football players down there. What if someone had sat down with them and had this conversation right now and said, boys, young men, there's a line you cross, and when you cross it, you become criminals, you become felons. What may seem like fun on your part is going to wind up with you spending 25 years in the penitentiary. 
do you think they might have been a little less willing to have 30 minutes of fun by defiling an innocent young girl? Maybe that wake-up call could have saved everybody's life for being changed forever. Now, I have no doubt that you as parents don't need me to tell you that you need to tell your children to behave when they go to college, but this is one that needs to be a conversation all on its own. This doesn't need to be embedded with, you need to behave yourself when you go to school. You need to sit down and let them understand when a young woman is intoxicated, in the eyes of the law, she does not possess the capacity to give consent. If she does not possess the capacity to give consent, a young man taking liberties with her is considered non-consensual sex, and that is sexual assault and rape. If a young man has sex with an intoxicated woman, that person is deemed not to have the capacity to give consent. That means they have had non-consensual sex, and by law, that can be deemed sexual assault or rape. So they may think, hey, you know, we went out, and man, she was drunk, and she was down for anything. Yeah, that may be, but when she wakes up the next morning and thinks back through it, you may have some questions to answer that you have no answers for. They may not have thought, hey, we were all drunk. She just seemed like she was having a great time, and so we went off and did all of this. But when it's looked at again, and you realize the law says she didn't have capacity to consent, then you got a lot of trouble. Now, are campus authorities going to help you? Well, maybe, maybe not, because it often gets into he said, she said. Will law enforcement officials on campus help? Yes, they will help, and yes, they mean well. But the best protection that your child can have is self-protection. 86% of sworn campus law enforcement officials have legal authority to make arrests, even off-campus grounds. 86% of sworn campus law enforcement agencies have a staff member that is responsible for rape prevention programming. But your child's not going to listen to them the way they're going to listen to you. Most campus law enforcement agencies have an understanding with local law enforcement that, hey, we're going to work together. We understand we've got campus police force here and you've got community police force there. Let's work hand in hand. And so they do. But again, they often get involved after the crime has been committed. We want to get involved before the crime is committed. What we want to do is talk about how to keep your child from getting involved in a situation that they can't walk back. Because this can be a bell they simply cannot unring. If you're going to have this conversation with your child before they go off to college, let me suggest that you do it in the following way. You've already had conversations about, look, you need to be responsible with money. You need to behave yourself. You need to not be out partying all night. You need to do your work, et cetera, et cetera. You've done all that. I want you to have a conversation that stands on its own. I want you to have a conversation that is not something that is part of the wallpaper of conversation that you have. I want you to have a conversation that stands out against the background of everything else. I want you to sit down with your child, and if you think it's better for 
dad to do it or mom to do it with daughters or sons, it doesn't matter. Again, let me emphasize, this isn't just about a cautionary tale for your daughters to watch out because it's the young men that are doing the assaulting and the raping. You need to talk to them. This Corey that I'm talking about from Vanderbilt University, he was one of 13 children. His mother worked at Vanderbilt University. And her lifelong dream was for one of her children to actually get to go to that university. And he was the youngest. She had that dream for her whole life. And number 13 out of 13 actually made it because he got a football scholarship. She could not have been prouder. It was her dream come true. Can you imagine how devastated she was when they walked him into the campus police department with his hands cuffed behind his back for raping a co-ed on campus? His life is ruined. Her life and dreams were destroyed. So this is a conversation that needs to stand on its own. Let's first talk about your daughters. If someone is pressuring them to engage in sexual activity, it is important that they understand that being in that situation is not their fault because they could feel like, oh, have I been a tease? Have I led somebody on here? Have I done something wrong? They always have the right to say no up to and including any time during the interaction, they have the right to say no. They have the right to say, stop, take your hands off of me, get away from me. I'm saying no, I'm saying stop, leave me alone. You have to make sure that they understand they never sacrifice their right to assert their will, say no, and leave. And the best way that's going to come into play is if you role-play this with your child. Preaching to them is not going to get there. You have to role-play this with your child. Tell them, okay, here we are. We're at a party and someone is saying to you, hey, let's go upstairs. Let's go upstairs and be alone. Have them role-play how they're going to say no. And when they say, well, no, I I don't want to, push them. No, come on, let's do it. Come on, let's go upstairs. Let's just go up there for a few minutes. Push them until they have practiced saying no, 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 until they get to the point where they say, hey, bucko, back off. Leave me alone. They need to have done that in safe ground before they have to do it in a real interaction where the stakes are very, very high. Play this out with your daughter. Play it out where you try to push her, guilt-induce her, persuade her, so she has to go through the exercise of saying, no, leave me alone, get back, leave me alone. And the same thing has to happen with your sons. Have them project and walk through. Say, okay, you're there, good-looking girl, everybody's partying. She seems to be really drunk. You know, she's waving her arms. She's standing up on the chair. Woohoo! All of this, I mean, it just seems great. 
Now let's role play with him what happens when there's a knock on the door the next morning from campus police and she has filed a complaint that last night you had sex with her and she says it was rape. And the fact of the matter is she was drunk and you are expected to have known that and restrained yourself. Let them make their arguments. Let your son say, well, hey, we were all drinking. How am I supposed to know? Answer that question. Because they are supposed to know. In a he said, she said, he loses. Not some of the time, all of the time. So if she is incapacitated, if she is clearly intoxicated, the risks are too high. You need to play that out with them. You need to go through the role-playing the next morning when that phone rings, when there's the knock at that door. Play that out for them. Have them understand, okay, yeah, I hear what you're saying. What I need you to do now is turn around and put your hands behind your back and ask how that changes their life. If you don't put them in the situation and you don't role-play it, I promise you it will go in one ear and out the other. Now, when you're doing this, Your kids may laugh about it. They may roll their eyes. They may go through all this, oh, yeah, okay, Dad, yeah, 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 I get you, I get you, I get you. But let me assure you, when you role play it, it will sink in. And all you need is for that memory to trigger in their mind one time at a critical moment to keep them from making a decision that ruins their life. That's a conversation that's worth having. Now, there's one other thing that I want you to talk to your sons and daughters about. I have dealt with many situations where particularly young women have gone to parties, sometimes with friends, and sometimes maybe it wasn't a friend, but they see a girl there that is clearly drunk. I've had situations I've had to deal with where they have been out in the driveway holding a girl's hair back while she vomits because she's had so much to drink. And 15 minutes later, they watch her get in a car with four boys and drive off. Come on. You'd never leave a friend behind. You need to talk to your sons and daughters. If they see a young woman heading into clear disaster, I don't care if they know her or they don't. Maybe your daughter's there with four friends and there's some girl over there they don't even know and they see her drunk and weaving, and guys are kind of holding her up and leading her down the stairs out to their car, they need to know, you know what? She's one of us. I may not even know her name, but we're going to go over there and say, hey, you need to come sit with us. You don't need to go down those stairs and get in the car with those boys and leave. Because when you do that, you're going to save that girl from getting assaulted. Your daughters may not think about that. Your sons may not think about that. But if someone is truly incapacitated and they're getting led out of a party by three or four boys, trust me, somebody needs to step up. Somebody needs to go over and say, hey, she's with me. Come over here. Girls, boys, whatever. And if you think it's going to start a big fight, I've been in a lot of fights. And that lasts for 15 seconds, lasts for a minute police may get called or whatever, but it beats the hell out of letting some girl get in a car and wind up in a field getting gang raped by some drunk guys. Never leave one of your college buddies, friends, acquaintances, a stranger 
where you can see what they can't see, and that's that they're headed into danger. Wouldn't you want someone to do that for your daughter? If your daughter was intoxicated and she was leaving with four boys and there was a group of five girls standing just across the room watching this, wouldn't you want one, two, three, or all five of those girls to go over there and say, hey, no, 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 she's going to stay here with us? And they say, you don't even know her. Yeah, I do now. What's your name? Debbie? Yeah, Debbie, you're my new best friend. You're staying here with me. You can laugh. You can call me puritanical. You can do whatever you want. But this just comes down to simple human decency. And you know who the benefactors of something like that would be? Certainly, Debbie, who doesn't go down the stairs and get in the car with those four boys. But you also just saved those four boys. Because if those four boys do what they're thinking about doing, they're going to become rapists. And if prosecuted, that's a felony, and their lives are ruined. They're going to be on the sex offender registry, maybe for the rest of their lives. They're going to spend time in the penitentiary. She's going to be scarred. Just by doing that, it may seem like you're some kind of nerd. I'd rather be a nerd and save six or seven lives from being destroyed than just sitting there knowing what I'm watching and doing nothing about it. You know, one of the really disturbing things is only 20% of the women between 18 and 24 that are sexually assaulted or raped report it. The reasons they give, they don't think they'll be believed. They don't think they want to get somebody in trouble. And a lot of them will say they don't want to become that girl on campus that was the victim of a sexual assault. They don't want to walk around because they feel like now they're going to be labeled. And that's the reason you've got to talk to them about this, because it could happen and they not tell you, they not tell anyone else. So parents, I've just put something big on your to-do list, because we're here. It's Labor Day weekend that we've just been through here, and your kids are getting ready to head off to college. Have this conversation. Make them listen. Let them roll their eyes. I promise you they're going to hear enough of it that at a critical moment, you may just save them or somebody else from destruction. When you go to our website, I'm going to have resources there for you, and I'm just going to tell you what they are and not read you all the numbers right now because you're probably driving in your car or taking a walk and you don't have something handy to write them down. But there are resources out there for domestic or intimate partner violence. There is the Office on Women's Health. There's a helpline. It's 1-800-994-9662. There's the National Coalition for Anti-Violence Programs. It has a number in New York, 212-714-1141. There's the National Domestic Violence Hotline, 800-799-SAFE. National Sex Assault Hotline, Victim Connect Resource Center, National Center for Victims of Crime, all of these different resources. Now, why am I giving you domestic violence hotline numbers? Because oftentimes these things occur on a date, in a relationship, as you heard about the Vanderbilt story. 
My point is, you don't have to live with this alone. And when you call these help numbers, they will not pressure you to give your name. They will not pressure you to out yourself. They will listen to you. They will answer your questions. So don't think if I call this number, I'm crossing a threshold from which I cannot return. That's not true. They're there to listen. They're there to help. They're there to answer your questions. They will meet you where you are in your mind and emotions and help you the best they can. Don't live with this alone. I'm Dr. Phil.